When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back uh, to New Books in Economic and Business History, um, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Um, I'm Ghassan Moazin, one of the hosts of the channel. Uh, today, it is my pleasure uh, to be speaking and talking to uh, Professor Margarita Zanasi, uh, who is Professor of History uh, at Louisiana State University. And we will be talking about her new uh, book, uh, Economic Thought in Modern China, Market and Consumption, circa 1500 to 1937, uh, which came out with uh, Cambridge University Press in 2020 and is a wonderful study that traces the development of uh, modern Chinese economic thought um, over several centuries. Uh, so, Margarita, thank you so much for taking the time and welcome uh, to the New Books Network. Well, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to talk about my new book and uh, to be included in this very interesting series. So I'm really honored to be part of it. Um, yeah, no, I, I just, yeah, thank you again. Thank you so much for um, taking the time. Um, as always, I thought I'd uh, start out just by um, asking how you um, came to write this book. This is obviously um, your second sort of major monograph, particularly, but um, how you came to write this book and how you came to this particular topic. Um, the reason... But there are several reasons <laughs> that came all together to convince me to write this book. Uh, but I think the main one is that I felt that we kind of reached an impact, an impasse in the study of Chinese economic modernization. Uh, because although what they called developmental determinism, that is the idea of the universally valid single path to development based on the experience of the Western industrialized nation. Although that idea had been universally criticized, uh, will still appear not to be able to really leave it behind us. A few recent books and very good books, brilliant studies comparing China during the Qing period with Europe had been crucial for the bank in the idea that China was lagging behind in this ideologically constructed developmental ladder. But still, they 
although they, they rescue China from a, a narrative of backwardness, they actually continue to uh, perpetrate a narrative of economic change that was based on the European experience. So they did so by proving that China had what European countries had in their pre-industrial period or in the early stages of, uh, of industrialization. So, for example, they had a rational thinking, they had a highly commercialized economy, but above all, they perpetrated the notion that modernization it was equated to market. So a, a modern economy had to be a market-driven economy. And, you know, I don't want to criticize the study. I cannot emphasize enough how important they were in completely reshaping the field of Chinese economic history and for laying the foundation for for new uh, approaches. But I felt that we needed to to do something else. We needed to take a a step further if we really wanted to free the study of Chinese economic history from this... uh, uh, for this erosentic narrative that seems so difficult to overcome. And so I thought that a good start would be to understand the Chinese uh, economic thinkers, how they um, perceive the Chinese economy, the problems they identified in the economy, the solution they devised, and maybe even more importantly, to understand what were their objectives. For example, for teaching, the social and economic uh, stability was crucial, was one of the main goals of their economic policies. Um, I believe that an understanding of economic thinking can be can really supplemented data-driven uh, studies of the Chinese economy. So there, I think there is an organic relation between the actual economy on the ground and economic ideas. As I mentioned in the introduction in the book, economic ideas develop in response to economic circumstances and to perceived problems. Uh, as economy changes, a new understanding of some of the economic function of the economy emerges, and in turn, these new ideas influence economic policy, which then have the potential to impact the economy. So it's a kind of a circular relationship. So I, I think for this reason that the study of the of economic history of China need to go hand in hand with the history of its economic thought. And so for this reason, I started researching how in the late imperial period, the early Republican period, Chinese intellectual and officials understood the workings of the market and of the con- so, and of consumption and the role they played in the economy of the empire and later on in that of, of the Republic. So above, above all, I wanted to trace the evolution of Chinese economic thought over a period important for the debate on modernization and for a comparison with, with Europe. Yeah, thank you. No, that's, um, that's fascinating. And um, I also just think that there's a real um, gap, certainly in English, uh, to sort of have a work that actually looks at economic ideas. Um, so I thought before, um, we'll, we'll dive into the chapters um, in a bit, but I wonder whether um, you could probably briefly sort of explain what you th- what is sort of the central argument that you um, want to make or that you, you're making in the book. Okay, so um, I tried to 
describe it's very difficult i think for everyone to remain to be very succinct in talking about the main argument of their work but i've tried to be as sufficient in summarizing as possible so my main argument is that the basic ideas of marketing consumption um those which are, which were linked to economic liberties and they're supposed to be the beginning of econo- modern economics and modern economics thought. So, and these are especially the idea that the market can self-regulate itself and that luxury consumption is, stimulates the economy and it's not a waste of resources. So these two ideas emerge in China uh, in the mid-1500s, which is roughly a century and a half earlier than in Europe. So it's important to understand that I do not want to start a war on who said what first, because this is not the point. Uh, so I argue that in China, these ideas emerge earlier because the commercial evolution came earlier. So the Chinese intellectuals, uh, officials, formulated the ideas when they observed how the new commercial economy worked. And, you know, in, in other words, they had the opportunity to observe a commercial economy earlier than their European counterparts. So, but, but the, so the discovery of this earlier formulation of these ideas does decentralize Europe in the mythology of economic modernization and does upset basic assumption in developmental de- determinism. So above all, I, I, I want to, to emphasize that it is clear that the Chinese economic thinkers did not lack any of the qualities which are generally seen as exclusive of European intellectuals of the Enlightenment. So these qualities are pragmatism, sophisticated understanding of various economic function, ability to change the status quo politically to, to think originally and to formulate innovative policies. So the, the, the Chinese argument in support of free market luxury consumption are very similar and are explained in very similar ways to those uh, of the celebrated Adam Smith and Bernard de Manville, um, who are seen as the father of economic liberals and, and economic modernity and badge. So I hope that now we can no longer implore, uh, uh, ignore instead the, the earliest thinkers like Luigi in the mid Ming period and another important economic thinker was Tangen in the early Qing uh, period. In in the second half of the book, instead, uh, well, the main point of the second half of of the book instead is to uh, address the point that China did not fail to rely on pro-market policy in the early 19th century. So I refer here to the well-known paradigm, and actually the infamous paradigm of China's failure to modernize. Uh, And the idea that China uh, abandoned market economy, and if they had continued to modernize, that is, use market economy, it would not have suffered some kind of economic decline and so on. But I argue that this, the Chinese uh, economic thinkers and officials, policymakers, continue to see the market as one of the most important elements of the economy of the empire. But they attempted to manipulate it to achieve their goals and discuss in more detail if we ever go into more specific about the third chapter. But in the early 19th century, 
they faced a dramatic economic decline, which they mostly blamed on an unprecedented population growth. And, and in, under this, those circumstances, they came to believe that rather than having the market influence what was produced, the state needed to apply targeted intervention to encourage the production of daily need goods and discourage data luxury consumption. And these were supposed to uh, try to prevent economic scarcity and, and widespread poverty uh, due to this uh, general economic decline of agricultural production. And these were two developments that they believed would have jeopardized the, the stability of the empire. Uh, so it is. So the, the point here is that it is at this time that we find the beginning of an idea of the developmental state, which has become an important study of the Republican period that became a much more important element in the post-1911 period. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, as you say, we'll get to that um, um, a bit later in the conversation, certainly, but this kind of... Um, transition from more economic sort of liberalist uh, thinking to then the developmental state that comes out, I think, quite um, strongly in the book. Um, one thing I wanted to uh, ask about as well before we start is um, the particular lens that you use to look at economic thought in this in the period uh, that the book covers is, of course, market and consumption. Um, and I was wondering whether you could say a bit about why you chose to focus on these um, this particular lens, this particular perspective when writing uh, the book? There are many words on economic thought in China. And there are... Uh, and in reality, Chinese economic thought is very rich. You know, it covers many different aspects, including taxation, land tenure, land reclamation. There's so many different uh, topics we could choose. So I had to narrow it down. <laughs> Than write, you know, an encyclopedia. So I chose market and consumption, and consumption being an important part of, of, of market, because I was interested in exploring the relationship between the state and societal economy. And so how the circulation of goods is organized in the economy can tell us a lot about the relationship between state and society. Uh, in addition, the market had been such an important focus of previous debates on modernization that, that I wanted to understand how the Chinese conceptualize it and what function they expected it to play in the economy. And uh, in this way, they, uh, they, they could kind of provide an alternative intellect, intellectual of interpretive tool uh, instead of using the Western concept to understand what was going on in China at, at, at the time. And consumption is also important because the acceptance of a luxury consumption as a force able to stimulate the economy and not as a waste of resources is really generally perceived as the second most important idea in economic modernization. And so I wanted to see how the economic thinkers perceived decision in relation to distribution of resources and uh, and consumption in general. So, Yeah, thank you. No, that uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, one last question I have before we start with Chapter 1 is um, I, 
I think particularly what I found particularly interesting, uh, especially in the introduction, you make the point that, of course, one problem, I guess, of writing a or writing generally about the economy or the Chinese economy, I mean, I know that myself as well, is if we use English terms or Western terms to talk about the Chinese economy, there's, of course, there's a problem in that. And you problematized it, I think, um, uh, you know, quite interestingly in, in the introduction. And throughout the book as well, you, um, of course, use Chinese terminology, things like minxiong and so on quite um, frequently. So I was just wondering whether you could talk a bit about this problem and how you chose to address it in the book uh, in terms of using writing in the Western language, basically, about Chinese economic thought. So this is a very important question because one of the reasons why we find it so difficult to get away from Eurocentric approaches, it is because we use a terminology that derives from Western theory. <laughs> and, uh, and this terminology is ingrained with meaning, heavy meaning. So uh, it's very difficult to use this meaning-loaded terminology uh, and, and, and escape the, the, the Western paradigm, let's say. So... Uh, because the Western economic thought started from Adam Smith has become the only scientific modern economics mode, everything that is not that's not does not use the that terminology uh, is considered not scientific and professional. So, uh, but which is really not true. So, for example, the Western term for consumption is loaded with conceptual implication linked to the liberal market economy, especially in the relationship between demand and supplies. But it does not help us to understand consumption in a pre-industrial economy, uh, where circulation and distribution of goods were still very important, but they were not discussed in terms of consumption. They were discussed by using two different concepts. One was frugality, and one was luxury. So the two terms were used in relation to the kind of use of resources in relation to the availability of that resources. So if the resources are scarce, you need a kind of frugal consumption. So, so although this Chinese debate did not use the Western terminology, they, they were still important a discussion of uh, they were still very pragmatic and they really um, let us understand that the Chinese had a very uh, clear view of what the distribution of resources, the mode of distribution is, or the different modes of distribution of resources and what each of them implied. I don't know if this answered your question. No, it does, yeah. no, absolutely. Um, and I think that, uh, yeah, certainly for, I think, anyone, not just working on economic thought, but generally on the, on the Chinese economy, um, and writing the Western language, that's, that's really a very important uh, point that um, I think is actually not problematized um, enough, uh, I often think. Um, so I wanted to just ask, ask about that. But yeah, I think that's, that's very useful. Um, but uh, to now finally uh, jump uh, into the actual uh, uh, chapters. Um, so in chapter one, um, you sort of provide, obviously, the you know, essence conceptual framework uh, and also the historical background uh, sort of pre-1500. Um, that sort of sets up the, the analysis of the story uh, in the book. Um, and uh, I thought there were particularly two um, interesting case case studies, I guess, or cases that you bring up in uh, Chapter 1 um, 
in order to sort of talk about market consumption and the role of the state. Uh, and that is on the one hand side, the, the uh, debate on salt and iron, uh, which is obviously comes from the third century BC, uh, and is sort of an important uh, uh, debate about political economy. And then we have the famous uh, Song official, uh, 11th century uh, Wang Ai-se and uh, his new policies and what he tried to do uh, in terms of the economy. So I wonder whether you could talk about these two cases and why you focus on them and how they help sort of our understanding or your analysis of uh, the relationship or Chinese thinking generally about markets and consumption. Uh, well, I, I chose... Well, I, first of all, the, the first chapter is supposed to give an idea of the main theme in Chinese economic thought, because there is, as I said, there isn't much studies on that. And so I think I needed to really explain some basic background before diving into the Ming Chain period and market and consumption. And, and so that's supposed to, 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 to offer this general background. And I chose actually specifically to focus on the debate on Solterai and Iron and then of the new policy, one issue the new policies, because they're very famous debates and they focus exactly one of the themes that interests me and that run through the book, and it is how the Chinese saw the relation between state and private economy, both of them. And uh, and also there is an, another uh point that I think comes out, I hope, clearly. And the the comparison between these two debates helped me emphasize how perception of this issue changed over time, although they seem to be the same debate between, you know, state taking over control of the economy and instead the opposition of a kind of a more free uh, mean economy, more free and independent from the state. But in, rea- in reality, the, the perception of has changed in the debate and how the things are discussed have changed a lot. So the Sultanarian opposes legalist and, and confusion in opposition, okay? And the legalist was the state to control the economy and they, they um, favor state intervention and state expertise. They believe that officials should be experts that oversee important aspects of the economy, including managing the, the market. The Confucians are generally perceived as generalist philosophers who put moral values above economics. An interpretation of on which I disagree, as I make, I think, I hope I make clear in the book. Uh, but the, so the Confucians are very suspicious of the strong straight state. They believe that the strong state can really be uh, monopolized resources and hurt the, the people's economy. So the, the one I should debate seems to be exactly on the same thing. But this time there is not even a mention of legalism. So one should present uh, present arguments that are very very similar to those of Sun and Yan and you know of the salt and iron uh, debate, but they are presented completely framed in Confucian terms. So by this time, uh, Confucianism has already incorporated in itself and accepted a certain amount of state intervention, you know, and of course it is very clear with the, with the ever, um, with the granary system and so on. 
And so there is still a doubt, there is still a debate on how far should the state go in intervention of the economy. And, and, and you know, here we go, Sumaguan has, has the same fear, you know, this worry that the state, if the state monopolizes too many resources, the, the, the people could suffer. But what I'm saying here, these two cases uh, talk about a very central issue of state relationship, state intervention, what is the limit of state intervention, uh, how, and what is the relationship with the private economy, but it also shows how the Confucian philosophy is not that stereotypical, immovable school of thought, but it's actually already evolved tremendously, so much so that Wanan can present a program very similar to that of Song Yongyang without even, you know, everything, justifying everything in Confucian terms. And so it's... And for me, proving this flexibility of Confucianism is important to then understand how changes after 1500 can be still presented as part of Confucian thought, though they go against very ideas that were previously considered basic notion in Confucian philosophy. So this... Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. Um, uh, and I think, yeah, I think that really sets up very nicely what sort of what you um, cover in the uh, in the following chapters. But um, I wonder whether I could just ask briefly about this as well. Um, so when, obviously, the second case, Wang Anxi, is that situates us um, in the Song Dynasty. Um, so around 1500, where exactly, like, would you say this debate between the state um, and the economy is actually if we can say that has arrived, I mean, um, uh, especially for uh, someone who might not be um, that familiar. So um, before we move into uh, into the uh, sort of into the post-1500 period, where exactly um, is that debate between, you know, what how far the state should go in terms of intervening in the, uh, in the economy? So uh, it, in the, how is the state intervening in economy before the 1500s? Yeah, like in when we basically uh, arrive uh, around fifteen hundred, um, how the state? You uh, I mean there's obviously you're you're describing a debate, and I just wonder whether um, you could talk briefly about where the debate is basically at that point. Um, so uh, it's we cannot generalize from one uh, dynasty to the others, you know, because we see very different situations. So we say we see, you know, we talk about one answer. We see, you know, how uh, this kind of intervention attitude is defeated, but still there are uh, the the the, the granary system is functioning. The every normal granary system is functioning very well. So there is a salt monopoly. So there is the the, the 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 Confucians are working with some targeted intervention. So the, the state uh, use targeted intervention for important uh, issues. So. Uh, especially is very concerned about the price of grain and the circulation of, of grain. Okay, so the grain is going is considered to be the fate, you know, the destiny of the people. In terms that comes back to once and even earlier, and so 
and and for the state is important that the greens and this and, and other important basic stables circulates very well in the empire because resources are supposed to be scarce and so they want to be spread around the empire as much as possible to maximize the distribution and avoid pocket of scarcity and so the state has does in, intervene in uh, in, in a targeted way. So especially uh, it, it, it intervenes to keep um, circulation of grains smooth and especially intervenes if there are crises. So if there is a famine in an area, the state then open releases grains from its, uh, from its granaries and uh, you know, if the, the local granaries are not enough, you transport, you know, from 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 the capital, transport it to 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 the region, and uh, trying to convince local merchants to uh, open up the doors of the granary. So the, the idea is that, that the state intervene ad hoc on certain methods for certain crises. Otherwise, it leaves more or less the market to do its own. What is supposed to do, okay? But the, so, but but even during the Zoom, this intervention is actually questioned. You know, I I don't know. You know, it, it is during the Zoom that actually someone starts saying, "Well, you don't need to solve famine crisis because now we can. The merchants themselves can actually deliver." Uh, Greens in the affected areas where they, you know, so because uh, especially these uh, these uh, officials called Don Wei, who is an expert in famine the relief, uh, he argues that uh, uh, in in area affected by famine there is uh, very scarce supplies of of of, uh, of grains and the demand is very high so the prices are also skyrocketing and so merchants from other regions can you know rush there and sell their goods with the prospect of very high returns because of the high prices and then he argues that the the prices would actually eventually go down because other merchants would arrive attracted by the same uh, prospect of, of high returns and so has the supplies increase there is going to be competition the prices will go down back again at the level at the normal level so there is no need for the state to intervene actually it is more efficient if the merchants and the private merchants actually follow you know to you let them operate solve the the uh, the, the crisis. So uh, you see that the, the the state intervention is targeted, but still the the debate is all is ongoing mm-hmm. all the time. Every time there is a change or something. In this case of uh, famine relief strategy, the change is the expansion of the canal system. Now merchants can very cheaply and fast, you know, move their Greens to a different region, a faraway region, and so because they can do it, there is no need for the state to do it. Before this was possible, moving private greens was expensive and laborious. Then they wouldn't do it, so the, the, the state needed to intervene. So what I'm saying is that state intervention is always kind of targeted. It changes also mm-hmm. 
uh, you know, by dynasty what they decide to do, but uh, it's always uh, targeted to solve specific problems. And they're also continuously in discussion. Everyone is continually debating how to do it, what is the best way to solve, is, is, is the, the private merchants more uh, able to solve the problem efficient or it is the state. So I'm not an expert of the Zoom period, you know, I just, <laughs> I just picked a few aspects of the pre-1500, so I don't dare to make big general, generalization on the, on the pre-1500 period, but that's, you know, in my study, this is what I saw. Sure, no, thank you. Um... So I think the other thing that uh, that uh, the other uh, important aspect of the study that comes in in chapter one is, of course, on the one hand side, the concept of minsheng or livelihood. Um, and then you also talk about this idea, which you already touched upon, the, the sort of contrast between frugality uh, and um, luxury. And in this case, it's um, it comes in the form of Revering frugality and eliminating luxury, so Chongjian Chusha. So I wonder whether you could talk a bit about um, the importance of these concepts or economic ideas in the pre-1500 period. So Minsheng on the one hand side, and then this contrast between frugality and luxury. So I spent time explaining uh, Minsheng because which actually should be translated as as a concept is ensuring the livelihood of the people okay and, and, and i make the case that it is an important aspect of the mandate of heaven in other words it's an important source of political legitimacy so taking care of population was considered an important aspect of the supposedly heaven sanctioned good governance so it gives legitimacy because that was a good ruler should should do, taking care of the people. Uh, but I also argue that it was a very pragmatic objective. It's not, not just uh, a, a legitimacy and theoretical ideas. It was a very pragmatic objective because it ensured subsistence. And if you ensure subsistence, it prevented uh, rebellions and uprising. And at the same time, it created a reliable tax base. So these were ideas that actually dated back to Manchus, the cut across different school of thought, legalists agreed on this point, Taoists agreed on this point. And so, but so it, the chain took this particularly seriously as it becomes clear in the in their policies of uh, you know Guoji mentioned that is uh, state um, finances and uh, people livelihood that you know they put it really at the center of their political economic strategies and so it is important to clarify one point, and it is that this mission is a mandate and an objective. It is not a policy. Okay, so uh, it, so let's use as an example the other thing you asked me about, that was the policies of reverent frugality and eliminated luxury. Okay, so this idea, this policy, 
was supposed was formulated in the context of the uh, an economy of scarcity when there are not many resources and this is generally what happened in a pre-industrial agricultural country the it's production limited to the land the fertility of of, of the field and you know and uh, good weather bad weather and so on but there is not very elastic and in these scarce resources if you actually uh, someone uses more than others there is not enough for so if you use more there is not enough for someone else okay and so it's important that people use in a parsimonious way and use what is important for everyday needs the, the economy cannot support more than that and and so this idea of, of frugality that serve this economy of scarcity and also become um, connected to Confucian values. So frugality also meant um, um, integrity and honesty and so on. So a Confucian gentleman always claimed to be frugal, even if most of the time probably was not. But, you know, that was the image of the Confucian gentleman. So, but then... This changes in the period from 1500 to 1800 when luxury consumption is no longer perceived as wasting resources, but actually luxury consumption is seen as stimulated economy. And we will discuss this later when we, we talk more in detail about chapter two. But it is here in this period because of a different commercialized economy that people start claiming that luxury consumption is, 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 a positive, is positive and frugality is damaging the economy. And they present this argument in Confucian terms. They claim Confucian legitimacy because they still contribute to the objective and the mandate of Minxiang. So as long as very different policies claim to be contributing to achieving the Minxiang mandate, they gain Confucian uh, legitimacy. Okay, so I don't know if it makes a, a sense, but you know, the fact that this idea of Minxiang is, is an objective and not a rigid uh, policy allows very different kind of uh, of strategies to be legitimized in, within the Confucian umbrella. So, uh, so I use the the the, the recovery, reverting uh, frugality and eliminating luxury as an example of how they could still, even if it went against this uh, this notion of frugality as as morality and uh, honesty and so on, it still continued. It still could claim a poly- um, legitimacy, Confucian legitimacy. Yeah, right. No, I think I think uh, yeah, that that makes things much uh, much clearer. Um, so um, to move forward now to the second chapter, um, of course, in terms of the time period, we are now looking at the period between roughly 1500 to 1800. That means that uh, the Ming Dynasty comes to an end and and, uh, you have the um, establishment of the Qing Dynasty in 1644. And it sort of brings us right to uh, what we call often the Hai Qing, so uh, sort of uh, 
Kangxi, Yongzheng, Tianlong, sort of the peak of, 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 of the Qing list in, in, in many ways. So I wonder whether you could talk a bit about um, uh, what you said in Chapter 2 and particularly what changes in terms of economic Chinese economic thinking about uh, market and consumption uh, in the period between 1500 and 1800. Uh, yes. So the idea what the, the idea of the market has already had a very dramatic change in the Song period as I anticipated earlier, answering the previous question. It was in this period that the you know, because the merchants had more mobility, transporting goods was Cheaper and faster, uh, it, it you know, this allowed merchants to really um, compete on the markets. And so, even if they were seeking profits, which was very anti-Confucian, you know, but because they they could really compete because they could move around uh, searching for 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 profits. Uh, they can move around and, and operate on different markets. So it was very efficient sometimes to let the, the private economy, the private merchants solve issues that had first been dealt with by the state, as the example I made of the uh, issues of grain reliefs in response in cases of famine. But what is important that by uh, the the period, by actually by the beginning of the Qing period, this idea was so uh, widespread and well accepted that actually even the Yongzheng, the Kanxi and Yongzheng emperor ended up assigning, privatizing function of the economy of a certain function that had been previously functioned managed by the state, like supplying the army <laughs> okay then instead of having a state taking care of that now they 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 gave contract to merchants private merchants to do it because it was more efficient and they did it faster and better and cheaper although it turned out to be a total disaster at the end but anyway <laughs> because of corruption and so on so i mean th- that idea had really taken uh, put down rules and especially i think in the most famous case is that by the time of Qianlong, uh, the, the the government, the, the Qing state, had actually kind of scaled down the ever normal granary system, and they actually completely retreated from the business of grain distribution. Um, but so a very important change in this period, instead, is in relation to the idea of consumption. And it is here that we see the maturation of the commercial e- economy. And it is in this context of the maturation of the commercial economy that a new form of consumption uh, develops. So this is what the people do. They change their consumption habits uh, because of this high level of commercialization. So the, the, the form of consumption that emerged in this period is, I call it the, you know, the new luxury following the region, the re, uh, 
different diversification, different kind of of, of, of luxury. So the the Free talks about the old luxury, which is the pre-commercialization uh, luxury, which is limited to a very small elite, and it has very extravagant and. Uh, you know, it just proved to show, yeah, I'm the king, you guys have to adore me. So it has that political function and it's extremely stark. But with this period of high commercialization, the new luxury is a luxury that looks more for improved life. It kind of going above subsistence. It looks for more comfort in life. And it is in this period that a larger portion, it's not just an elite, it's a larger portion of the population start going out to see show, uh, to the theater. They go sightseeing and, you know, they go to see a famous monastery somewhere or they go to a monastery fair or they decide to uh, follow the latest fashion. Following the latest fashions is one of the biggest changes in the economy. Even shopkeepers follow the fashion that earlier on, you know, only the big elite would do it. And so we see this group of people, so they're not the elite, but they're not the peasant, are the, the middle people. A large portion of the urban population that engage into this kind of new luxury. And because of this demand, uh, you know, boat owners that take tourists from one side of the West Lake to the other, they thrive. And uh, I don't know, cooks, shopkeepers, they all thrive. And they, and so, and they make money. And so, this commercialization create can end up creating wealth on its own. So, in this setting, the market is not just important for moving goods around the country and making sure that resources are distributed evenly around the empire, but it itself generates wealth. So before there's the idea that only agriculture generates wealth, but now the idea is that commerce and trade generate wealth. And it is because of this expanded consumption. So one of the most interesting uh, writers I discuss in the book this intellectual called Luci, he observed that in urban in urban Jenland, people did not engage in agriculture. Still, they were the most prosperous people in China. So this was because he concluded it was the luxury the luxury habits that generated prosperity because they make people cook and sell their food and make money out of that. And that, so there was this, this economy, not only of commercial uh, based on exchange of goods, but also uh, based on leisure time, how you employ your leisure time. So this kind of economy, which is also a service economy, ended up being the source of the, 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 the motor, the main reason why the local commercial economy so, and here again, these ideas that seems to go against this idea of frugality has been the moral way of living and so on. So this idea that luxury is good for the economy 
and, and frugality is not because it will drag down the commercial economy and so impoverish the area, is also presented in terms of Confucian political legitimacy because it is presented as contributing to the mandate of uh, enriching, you know, supporting the livelihood of the people. So much so that when one minister is traveling in Jiannan sent a message, a letter to Qianlong say, oh, these people are crazy. They live in this immoral, uh, luxurious way. We have to revive uh, frugality. We have to reinforce those uh, uh, customary laws that were positively forgotten for Jiannan in this period. Qianlong said, no, 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 please don't do any of that. Let's leave things as they are, because if we start suddenly imposing frugality, the economy will suffer, people will impoverish, and we find ourselves with the rebellion very soon. So again, you know, the the stability, social stability, is the most important objective here. And so in this chapter, I also try to place these market production ideas in the wider social and intellectual context. So I discuss luxury consumption and the social milieu that inspired this production authors. I also discuss the, 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 the environment that inspired uh, thinkers who wrote against production. So, you know, I try to see both sides of the debate. It's not that everyone suddenly became pro-luxury. Pro-luxury became the most popular view, but there were still people who talked in terms of uh, morality and you know decadence of uh, society when everyone dresses in the, in the fashionable way and so on. Uh, also, it, so I, I described the you know the, the environment and try to describe the debate was side of, of debate and also try in this chapter to highlight the impact of current philosophical trend on the discourse of the economy and especially of the school of evidential studies and that of practical studies and how they somehow uh, shaped the way this literary thought and uh, and how you know they conceive the, the economy, and especially this two school of thought criticize very much neo-Confucian um, ideas, and for this reason they tended to downplay issues of morality and being instead very, very practical, what makes the economy go is more important of, of you know, neo-Confucian morals, basically. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think the, um, as you say, that the point that you made earlier that uh, Minxiang is a, it's not a policy, it's rather a mandate that is, of course, uh, comes in there very importantly. It's not like, uh, you know, the goal is sort of what is important. And, uh, you know, someone like Chen Long could say, we will leave things as they are because it seems to be working. So, uh, uh, and, and social stability is the most important thing. I think that comes up quite nicely. And I think from that chapter, um, particularly for those not who are not in the Chinese history field, I think also the point you make, of course, the industrious, industrious revolution is sort of a very uh, well-known uh, concept by now of Jan de Vries and so on, but that you show that, uh, as you say, that this, this, this rise in consumption um, also happens in China. I think that's, that's um, also quite, quite um, important. 
Um, but I think we should probably uh, move on uh, to the third chapter, and that's of course looks um, at nineteenth century when uh, we sort of move away from uh, the High Qing and and Qing government and Qing dynasty gets sort of in trouble both because uh, we've got economic stagnation partly um, caused by the rapid population growth, but you also have the arrival of uh, Western imperialism, of course, uh, the first Opium War. So I wonder whether you can talk a bit about you know what these challenges do to um, economic thinking uh, on the side of, 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 of Qing officials and economic thinkers in, in, in Qing China at that time? Yeah, I think I think it is important to say that the economic crisis started in, I mean, it was already understood that it was coming with all its force, but, you know, by the late um, 18th century, by the end of the Qianlong period, it was already clear that the economy was changing in a negative way. But by the beginning of the 19th century, it was, you know, a present danger. <laughs> it was there and you could not escape from, from it. And what, so I, I, for me, it's important to understand that the response to this crisis before the Opium War somehow set the trends that we're also going to see how the Chinese official intellectual dealt with the Opium War. Okay, so let's start with that crisis. So the crisis was the, the, the reason of the crisis were complex and various, but from the point of view of the Chinese thinkers I read, and there, you know, I, I tried to cover a lot of that. <laughs> so the main important of the factors that contributed to this crisis was uh, unprecedented population growth. And and this, you know, Hong Liangji said it very clearly that population grew exponentially while economic production, although although growing. So, you know, by now the Chinese never disputed the fact that the economy could grow. You know, the pre-commercial economy was considered kind of production was considered not elastic. By now everyone has accepted the notion that production is elastic, especially because of the commercial sector. But what you say, what well, you say is that the economy is never going to catch up with the population. So this is a kind of the Malthusian dilemma. And uh, so now China faced again an economic of scarcity, which however was different from the previous one because this one was considered, you know, and no one's Everyone knew how important the market is. Everyone knew that there were ways to grow the economy. So it was a different kind of scarcity. But the point remained the same. There is scarcity, and so people should not consume so uh, so much. Luxury consumption comes immediately under questions. And, and also, the big question is, how do we solve this gap between the, the growth in population and the growth in, in production. Well, according to Holyanji, there is no way to do it. So he, he has a very bleak view of the of the future, you know. Um, according to him, it's going to be poverty, rebellion, and just misery. But, but a lot of people instead have a more proactive approach uh, trying to solve the issue. And what they agree... Um, Upon is that 
this is an unprecedented crisis and so it needs unprecedented solutions. So before, if you had a situation of scarcity was like a year of scarcity because of the bad crop due to, I don't know, inclement weather, locust, invasion, and so on. And then the following year, we hope in a good, good crop and things come back to normal. But here we have a systemic problem because there is not one-year crisis due to an accident. It is that population grows and the economy can chop. It's a systemic problem. So they need absolutely new ways of thinking about it. And it is in this context that they start thinking and someone proposes long-term planning. The idea of planning emerging very clearly. And I think, I dare to say, it is the first time that there is really mention to economic planning. And the idea was that the state, and especially at the local level, local officials should try to discourage the production of luxury crops like tobacco and instead encourage people to use that field for grains, which is important, basic staples. And also the idea that the official, especially at local level, they should gain expertise. They should, you know, here again, the influence of evidential studies and, and, and practical studies. So this is the idea of, of specializing in agriculture. And so you become a specialized officials and you uh, try to manage production at the local level. And so this, so, you know, there is this, the, the government is, is trying to control what is produced, how much is produced, and there is an attempt to estimate in a certain province how many people are going to be there next year, so how much it needs to produce, and so on. And what it is important, however, is that no one discarded the market. So what they're trying to do is to include the opportunities for growth offered by the market and include them in their plan. So generally, there is this idea that the Chinese abandon market policy and enter into you know, more direct control of the economy. But that's not true. What they try to do is to create a hybrid solution, manipulate the market to make it serve the goals of the state. So this is really a kind of the beginning of developmental of the developmental state. And after the Opium War, the the economy of scarcity population remain the main idea because yes, the the arrival of imperialists adds problems to this, but the point is that if China remains poor, then by then poverty is no longer a, a challenge to the stability of the empire, by now, it's a challenge to the survival of the Chinese civilization because poverty becomes a backwardness. And if you are backward, you don't do very well in the struggle for the survival among nations. Okay, So the idea continues to be we have an economy of scarcity and we have to solve this scarcity because if we don't develop, if we don't, if we remain poor, we never go anywhere. So I, now in this in answering, I kind of oversimplified the uh, 
the, the issue, but I just wanted to stress the continuity, how this geopolitical change of, of you know, of population has really somehow created a, a, a problem and an attempt to control the problem by state involvement that cut across the opium, the opium war. And if you look at self-strengthening reforms, they actually deepen the protectionist view of you know the state t- taking into uh, a, a leadership in, in trying to modernize the, the, the state and, and promote industry. So there is definitely a, a continuity. So you know this chapter actually is a big question. It is reversing the, the, the figure to modernize question by asking if continuing the market policies of the early Qing period would have been a solution that could have saved China. Because this is what is implied, you know, China didn't go on, didn't develop and become weaker and weaker. And many writers says, you know, that the failure to modernize, that that means the failure to have a market-driven economy. But in in reality, if you look at, at history, you see that any country that attempted to industrialize and modernize after Western Europe <laughs> cannot just rely on the market. You know, even Germany that industrialized soon after had to have the state intervene. France had to, the, the, the banks, the credit mobile. So how could have China taken itself out of that position <laughs> just by this, uh, this, this, you know, a, a market economy? So it was you know, having a kind of developmental state, I think, was a, a good choice. And, you know, insisting on this neoliberal notion of that the, the, the free market is a panacea to all economic issues uh, is something that, to me, is not very tenable. Yeah, and I think also that the, the fact that you um, set this up, so you first show us that actually in the, you know, high Qing before roughly 1800, there is, um, quite a lot of reliance on the market, and then there's then afterwards due to these challenges, there's this change towards more the developmental state. I think also helps a lot in challenging this uh, this idea that you know if China had just relied more on the market, then things would have um, would have been different. Um, I think one other really interesting um, aspect of, of of the third chapter that I um, I, I really just wanted to uh, 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 ask about is also the um, you talk about this concern. I mean that goes back even further than. 1800, but that is renewed or even intensified. The, the, the concern between you have the obviously the coastal areas that, especially after the opening of the treaty ports, um, becomes re- very commercialized, and then you have the sort of rural hinterland. And of course, that's sort of a pattern that we, you know, until today see very much still as a concern in in, in Chinese uh, governance and statecraft. But um, you you discuss this, and I think that's really interesting. So I wonder whether you could just briefly talk a bit about you know, this this. Uh, this particular concern of, of economic thinkers and um, how to balance the commercialized regions of the coast with the rural hinterland. The, the, the maritime international trade was the, the, the main important factor of the commercialization of the maturation, you know, the, the, this Jenna mature commercial economy relying 
mostly on this uh, maritime trade with the West and other countries. And so there were, there were areas in the interland who had the possibility to deliver their goods to the coast and then they could be sold on, you know, by the big merchants on, on, on this maritime trade. And so somehow they became linked famously because we know, the, for example, the peasant, the silk industry and the peasant and so on. But there were a large portion, portion of China who did not have access to this network, commercial network, so they were left behind. And this created a big divide, not just because they could not take advantage of those economic opportunities, so the kind of decline in language, but also because the maritime trade was carried out in, in, in silver, the interland rule <laughs> uh, trade was all about copper, and so this created a big burden of politics and taxes were levied in, 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 in silver. So, you know, the, 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 the silver of the international maritime trade and the copper of the, of the local economy, this difference in this um, currency created, you know, contributed to, to the lag behind of, of certain areas. But this also, this, this gap deepened with the self-strengthening because the self-strengthening has acted prominence, brilliant book, The Making of the Hinterland. Uh, he explained very well how the, the mercantilistic approach to uh, followed by self-strengthening. You know, the main idea was actually to develop a new industry that for for export in order to attempt to balance to, to readdress the balance of trade between China and the imperialist big powers. And so the, everything that happened to strengthen the economy industrialized after the opium war actually deepened the gap instead of solving the problem. In my first book, I talk about the National Economic Council, which instead attempted to bridge the gap somehow. Uh, but I don't want to go to that here. But, you know, the point is that, as you said, this remained a major problem through the Republican period, through actually the communist period, even if Mao, you know, launched the Great Leap Forward to try to eliminate the gap, it was such a he'll conceive it was a total disaster as we know ended up in one of the most horrible man-made famine but even today the government in China is still trying to see what can we do you know, to, to fill this gap so remain a, a, a constant and you know that is remain extremely difficult to to, uh, to solve and uh, to solve yeah, no, no. I mean, as, um, yeah, as, as you say, that that's really a theme that that continues um, throughout the 20th century. So that's why I felt um, I uh, that's particularly interesting uh, how you just discussed this, and 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 I wanted to bring that out. But I think we should uh, we should move on um, and to the fourth and final chapter um, of the book, and that's obviously when uh, we move into the early 20th century. Um, and in terms of historical context, of course, we see the end of the uh, of, of of the Qing Dynasty and the end of of imperial rule in 1911, and then um, a period of, of 
division and, and somewhat instability until then in 1927 uh, the nationalist government um, is established and uh, at least nominally um, unifies China again and, and, and uh, you have sort of these 10 years until 1937 under their rule um, until uh, the uh, outbreak of war in 1937. So um, yeah, could you talk a bit about um, what uh, what they're thinking about consumption and state intervention in the market uh, is in this particular period um, and, and, and what kind of changes there are. So, you know, I think I, I just want to, to point one of the things that I think is the most important thing in, in this chapter, and it is the fact that the 1910s and the 1920s presented an opportunity for taking a liberal approach from, to modernization, okay? So in the Chinese context, where state intervention was given for granted and considered necessary, a liberal approach, I, I call it a liberal approach because it aimed at ending poverty and bringing, improving living standards and bringing them to modern levels of what were internationally considered modern living standards. So this was an idea that actually goes back to Sun Yat-sen. You know, Sun Yat-sen in the, in the principle of, uh, of the, the principle livelihood, uh, it talks about living standard. It's all about living standard. The, 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 the nationalist revolution uh, main ultimate goal is being, being shot, realizing the people, the principle of the people life. That means modernizing the life of the people. Okay, even if the government takes a very important role in doing that. And there is in the 1920s, there are a lot of people who want to see this kind of humanist and liberal um, uh, kind of. Uh, modernization in which money is invested in society, not only to improve living standard, but to create also a more cultural environment, you know, like Saurian Pay, the library, the anti-child, and so on. And so this is an opportunity to have a developmental state that actually take a liberal approach to modernization. But this, however, is, is defeated by the nationalists, when, when Chiang Kai-shek takes hold of the government, he has a conflicting notion for him. Modernization means a strong state, a strong military, okay? At the expenses of the population. So the population, you know, this, this program of the New Life movement is exactly um, conceived to in such a way that the resources are taken away from the living standard of the people who are supposed to be frugal and then channel into the military, the state, having industry and so on. So it reverses. So this, this becomes an authoritarian development and the, the authoritarian band of the developmental state. Okay. But I argue that this is not this was not inevitable, okay? So this the, the environmental state in the early decades of, of the 20th century could have gone either way. 
It could have become because there are certain developmental states who are liberal and others are more authoritarian. So it's not just one fixed model. And so they develop, this beginning of developmental state as conceived in the Qing and the self-strengthening, and then which actually called for cooperation with private um, economic uh, forces. But you know, and then as conceived in the 1910s. Could uh, did not have necessarily to turn into authoritarianism, but instead it turned into authoritarian developmental state and the model, both in the Republic and in the PRC. But I just want to stress that that was not inevitable. It was just how it went. It could have gone different. Uh, so, but the, the, another point is that this this chapter makes is that. It is at this time that we see the emergence of kind of vernacular economics. So with the expansion of the print media and so many journals published, hundreds of journals, magazines published, directed to uh, you know, women, young people, or middle-class consumers. So there is really now the, the, the debate of the economy is not just limited to the link. Yes, there are the new specialized economists who actually are trying to mediate between Western economics, uh, and that's a completely different uh, topic. But so there is the economist, most have studied in the West uh, or in China, but follow them. But there is also this vernacular economy. People talk about economic issues, within the economic modernization uh, in these journals, you know, there are students sending letters, the women organization sending letters to the editor. So there is really an expansion of who is going to debate what. So I don't know if this has... Uh, so I, th- I think this gives a little bit the main idea of what this fourth chapter is about. Sure. No, no, I think absolutely. Um, I think one thing I, 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 I wanted to ask about in, in this chapter, is, 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 uh, and you've already pointed towards that, you have the nationalists and Jiang kai coming in, and they are then, uh, again, more in favor of a strong state at the expense of, 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 of the people, I suppose, in a certain sense. But you, you, bring, you bring forward this idea of uh, a frugal modernity, which is sort of trying to, or which is kind of combining the idea that you want to have a, a modern state but then frugality plays, again, uh, an, an important uh, part in that. So I wonder whether you can talk a bit about this concept of frugal modernity that you develop in the chapter. Yeah, yes. You know, so as I mentioned in the 1910, 1920s, so there, there was this idea that, you know, higher living standard is a sign of modernity, so it's not frugality. Modernity is actually being able to buy a dishwasher. You know, dishwasher will be were not even invented, but <laughs> washing machine and so on. But uh, and also there is this context. You know, there is this image coming from the industrialized West of consumerism as an expression of modernity. So the the economy, the the, the consumer, the capitalist consumerist economy present an idea of modernity based on people uh, buying stuff, okay? And uh, so they tend, this country tend to have this propaganda style images of, uh, uh, you know, 
very comfortable household and comparing with the very food people in other countries. And they are not modern because they don't have all that stuff, the new toaster, all this kind of stuff. And so they present an image of modernity that is based on consumption. And this does not work for Chang'e Shek, who wants the resources to go instead into the state and the military and so on. And so he tries to revolt the paradigm and proposes a different notion of modernity. So modernity is the modernity of the state. And if you you participate in this modernity by allowing, by being frugal and allowing resources to go to the state. So the, the modern uh, citizen, according to Chiang shek is one who has all the Confucian value of uh, frugality has, you know, Neo-Confucian ideas, you know, that frugality is, so it's a, it's a Neo-Confucian frugal modernity. (laughs) You are modern because you are nationalist, and so you give up consuming, you know, so that the state can grow. So it, it constructs an alternative vision of what it means to be a modern citizen while consuming frugally. Yeah, thank you. No, that's the, I, I thought that was, uh, when reading the chapter, it was wonderfully interesting. So I wanted to uh, ask about that a bit. Um, I think we've already uh, gone on for quite a while, but I wanted to sort of to to wrap up um, the, the, the uh, our discussion of the book a bit um, to come to one point. I think you're making the conclusion that, that I think is, is, is quite uh, interesting and key. Um, uh, you, you make the point that it's important to, so in, in, in choosing this approach, the long durée approach, sort of to look at economic thought in China from 1500 until uh, sort of the early 20th century, um, that, that that sort of choosing this long time span is particularly important for understanding the development of economic thought. And I wonder whether you can talk a bit about that, um, why you think it's important um, for the church sector, this sort of long-term view of the development instead of looking either only at the late Qing or only at the nationalist government. Or, yeah. You know, the, the, the time of period I'm covering kind of developed as I was doing research, okay? So I wanted to look at economic, you know, ideas of modernity, economic thought and so on. But then I thought, how can I do it starting the Republican period if I don't know what what it was before, okay? So I started reading the late Qing period, but then I said, wait, but wait a second, there is the opium war. So how can I know what it was before if I don't go before the opium war? <laughs> and so I extended to the entire Qing, and then I realized that in reality, you cannot divide the late Qing the late Ming from the early Qing, because that's the period of the maturation of the commercial economy. So that mid-Ming, early mid-Ming, early Qing period has to be dealt together because it's a unit. And so I ended up extending back and backward and backward. But doing this, I was very happy I did it because I realized how how we periodize Chinese history and how we create this kind of compartmentalized area that very rarely talk to each other. So maybe people do soon don't talk very much with the Ming-Ching people and Ming-Ching people don't talk much with the Republican period. And so sometimes there is no way to really 
see these long-term trends and we focus too much on an imperial period. And, you know, I don't say that everyone should do that, but once in a while we need to to see what, how, you know, what was going on across those, those divide that we said, you know. And so one of the points for me was also the fact that I've been reading a lot of uh, studies on um, the late imperial period and the old focus on this presence of the market economy as, you know, if there were, uh, you know, I, uh, support to the market economy, if there were practices, economic practices that supported the market economy, well, then that was modernity, was there, the beginning of modernity. And they said, how can it be the beginning of modernity? But then when we go to the Republican period, modernity is identified with the with the developmental state. So how do we go from there? So I wanted to see where it was. And of course, you know, the developmental state actually happened, starts, before the Opium War, you know, and so on. And this starts for a very clear reason of changes in, 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 the, in the economy. So the long durée was a little bit of an accident on my side. But then, you know, I think it worked quite well. You know, now I'm thinking that maybe if I continue working on economic thought, I should focus on... You know, for example, I dealt with some thinkers that I could not really expand the discussion of them. There are a few things I would like to write an entire book on them. You know, the long durée forces you to kind of, you know, touch on that and go. (laughs) And sometimes you would like to really spend more attention to, to, to something. But, you know, there are different approaches and, you know, there are all important at the end you need to combine all of them yeah sure thank you no um that's really uh, fascinating i think um yeah, we've already um, been talking for quite a while and I don't want to uh, uh, hold you up any longer, but uh, because you already <laughs> just now touched upon it, um, I wonder whether, um, as always, I, I'd like sort of at the at the end of it, of course, now that, the, that this book is, is published and done, um, I, I just want to ask what uh, what you're working on uh, at the moment or what you plan to, uh, to work on after, after uh, this book now. Well, the, at the moment, I'm working on a book project that is tentatively uh, entitled Life Along the Grand Canal, Trade and Society in Qing and Early Republican China. So a shorter period, which is good news. Uh, So the main objective is to explore the impact on China's modernization and nation building on communities that were used to be at the center of the, at the political, economic, and cultural center of the empire, okay? And then they came to be marginalized by the various transformation carried out for national building, self-strengthening, and so on. So, and I'm talking about towns along the Grand Canal. So the Grand Canal used to be the, the, you know, the place where the, the, the grain tribute uh, was transported up to the capital. It was the major mercantile transportation, trade, and so on. So all these 
um, communities along the canal benefited tremendously and their prosperity was based on canal because canal was center for military reason, economic reason, political reason, and so on. But then what and then, you know, the, the canal started silting up, it became too difficult to 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 continue to dredge it and repair all those various uh, uh, kind of um, floodgates and so on. And then, you know, there was a complete decline, the end of the tribute greens transportation. And then you go, and then here again, I mean, Pomeranz has a, a big influence on me. Again, Pomeranz tells you how the new transportation network kind of transform center places that had been previously important commercially that transform it into backwater. Okay. So now that there are new railways and, and trade goes on these new railways, all this the town community cannot kind of decline. What I'm interested is what kind of social economic changes happen in these marginalized communities. So, for example, a large portion of the population were state officials dedicated to working on the canal. And then there were big merchants, and then there were itinerant merchants, and then there were work. So, a lot, the, the population changes completely in this area. And I want to know who emerges as the new elite. What kind of effort to restructure the economy take place? So, in other words, we talk about modernization and we focus on the success story like Shanghai, you know, modernity, uh, cosmopolitanism. But this is the other side of the coin, you know. The, the people who are actually damaged by this modernization effort who find themselves having to reconstruct the position of the hierarchy of place of change. They, now they are in the hinterland, the, the, the center of modern China is a coastal area. And so so it, it's, it's, it's a story of, I don't want to call it, it's a story of decline instead of development because it's a story of trying to reconfigure yourself when you are damaged by modernization. I don't know if it makes sense, but this is the project. And of course, it all depends on access to archives, what's going to happen in the future. Yeah, no, sure. But uh, that, that really sounds sounds uh, sounds fascinating. So I uh, I uh, look forward um, to, yeah, to learning more about that uh, in the future. Um, but uh, yeah, um, I feel I've already taken up uh, uh, enough of your time. So what reminds for me is to uh, thank you again for taking the time to uh, to uh, talk to me about your wonderful uh, book, which I can uh, only recommend to everyone to have a look at. Um, yeah, thank you very much and uh, goodbye. Thank you for having me as a guest on your series. <laughs>